some of these trends that we're seeing, they're unfolding in front of our very eyes constantly, but your eyes have to be open. So I think a lot of people are very threatened by AI and it's cool that you said at least the creative people are going to be the ones who come out on top as a result of this. Yeah, I would say eavesdrop and ask strangers inappropriate questions and uh, and ignore the people you're at dinner with. I think all of those are extremely <laughs> I love extremely it. important important takeaways. Michelle, an entrepreneur and creative business coach. Hi, I'm Steve, and I'm a social media and digital content strategist. We're friends with a shared passion for creativity in all its forms. Through this podcast, you'll find ideas to help up your game and share experiences with a community of creatives who understand what it's like to work and create in the digital world. If the episode you're about to hear sparks something inside of you, share your voice by connecting with us on social media at Pod4Creatives on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. So welcome back, Steve. I'm back. East Coast. I don't think My everyone coast. even knew that you left, but well, that's well, some no, some people definitely. Actually, a lot of people knew where you were. But why don't you tell the people who weren't with you last week where you just got back from? Uh, just got back from California. Um, was out there for about four or five days for a uh, national conference for school public relations organization that I'm a part of. So. That was a lot of fun. Um, got a chance to see Anaheim and Garden Grove, California. Um, got a chance to go to Disney, which, uh, you know, was exciting. Most happiest place on earth let me in. So yes. that's pretty cool, right? I can't believe it. They didn't you thought have I'd you... get turned away at the door. Yeah, they'd be like, oh, this is Steve King. Now he's he's going to bring this place down. Well, one of our one of my best friends and um, one of our listeners, Betsy Spina, um, got me in. Uh, she works for Radio Disney, so that was um, that was fun to be able to to, to go over there and kind of get to experience a lot of that. So, yeah, it was cool. We had a great time. Um, conference was great. Um, weather was great. Uh, my body didn't do too well with the time change for a day or so, but you know, whatever, you power through, and uh, yeah, it's good. It was a good good couple of days. Good to be around. I'm sure, like you know, we all kind of identify either through this podcast or just in our own spheres of uh, of influence. Um, you know, good to be around people who, who do what you do and have an appreciation for the work that you do and um, good professional development for a couple of days. So, yeah. You also had the opportunity while you were there to be interviewed on someone else's podcast. Is that right? Yes. Uh, known friend of the show, Shane Haggerty. Yes. Um, wait, what are, wait, what are Shane's accreditations? We should include that. Shane Haggerty <laughs> APR. And, and don't Not that there's it. anything wrong with that. No, people's accreditations and what they do in their personal lives is totally up to them. Um, I feel like I'm contractually obligated to say no. No, Shane's got an awesome podcast called uh, The Breaker Society. Um, and definitely, um, if you're a fan of of interesting people with interesting co- podcasts, and um, if you're listening to this, of course you are, um, you should totally go check his out. Um, really cool interviews. Um, he's done about, I think he's done about, this will be episodes... Shane, you're going to kill me on this, but maybe six and seven that are coming out. Um, and I think I'm, I'm slated to be episode six. So, um, but definitely listen to the whole lot. They're great. Uh, he's got a great format and, um, and it was really cool to, to, to get a chance to sit in on his podcast and be a part of that. So a lot of fun. Talked a lot about you actually. Oh, that's very nice. I can't wait to listen to it. I was very flattering. I find that hard to believe, but I'll have to go and listen. 
you go to Disney once, it changes a man. So. Yes. Oh, and the best thing to come out of this entire trip, for me anyway, is the fact that you came home with some very nice photos that we can use in our social promos. So thank you to Betsy. Thank you to whoever took the photos when you were recording with Shane. Those are going to be awesome. And you know, I'm sure that you guys are now going to see those at Nauseam in the coming months. Um, and then we'll have to get a new batch. You'll have to go somewhere else. I'll have to go somewhere else, yes, because wherever I am right now, not really photo opportunities, so no. not many at least. Yeah, it was cool. It was a good trip. How are you? I'm good. I haven't gone You're anywhere, get- but I'm getting ready to. You're getting ready to go somewhere. Yeah, right. heading out to New York tomorrow night, and I'm going to be uh, out in the Hamptons. I'm going to go to Cape Cod to spend some time with my parents, and then um, back for a month before I go to Europe for the first time. So yeah, lots of travel, uh, in my future. And I don't know, maybe I'll share some of that. I don't know if I'll share so much of that from the podcast account unless, unless that's what the people want, but can you at least tell us where you're staying in Paris? Oh, um, it's an apartment complex. It's, it's called the Eiffel towers. (laughs) Uh, Seinfeld jokes are the best jokes. And if we only get them, Yeah, whatever. Yeah, it's Um, all part of it. I mean, we'll come out with the official either whether, you know, if you're not not a drinker, if you don't want to call it the drink, the PFC drinking game, the PFC bingo. Um, But yeah, Seinfeld jokes is definitely on that, along with the word interesting, which is the perfect segue into what this episode is about, because Steve, I really had to throughout this entire special episode had to restrain from using the word interesting. I wanted to say it constantly and I caught you saying it a few times so it's still in there but why don't you tell the slack for people yeah in the drinking game why don't you tell the audience why this special episode is so interesting yeah we're really excited about about this episode um we're excited to welcome Kim Lear uh on the podcast I first met Kim uh in San Antonio uh at the school PR conference uh last summer so that would be the summer of 2017 Uh, She was the keynote speaker uh, and she was phenomenal. She um, studies the topic of of generations and how they uh, impact and how those generations are impacted by um, by branding, by advertising um, and how how those generations grew up, how that kind of impacts our society as, as a whole. Um, and I was just fascinated by uh, what she had to say and how it affects um, our business and public relations. And we thought it would be a great opportunity to invite her on, uh, which she was so uh, gracious in, in doing and spending some time with us and kind of have her share some of her knowledge and background uh, with you guys. Um, so, yeah, really cool, right? Yeah, it was really cool. And I definitely geeked out throughout the entire episode. And I know that you guys are going to as well. So I'll tell you a little bit about her. Kim is the founder and content director of Inlay Insights, a company that identifies emerging cultural trends that impact the way people work, buy, and live. She's a writer and researcher focused on generational patterns and demographic shifts. She's known for her ability to use a mix of data, storytelling, humor, and actionable takeaways to discuss the trends that most impact the bottom line of organizations. Kim is keynoted for some of the most renowned companies in the world, including American Express, Cisco Systems, Disney, General Mills, PricewaterhouseCoopers, Wells Fargo, and more. She lives and works in Minneapolis, where she's currently running a research initiative to identify how the sharing economy impacts our perspectives on community and consumption. Enjoy our conversation with Kim. So, Kim, 
Um, you studied uh, the topic of, of generations, and that's something that you've developed uh, a passion for at a, at a relatively early age in life. How and, and why did you come to that conclusion to, to study generations? Yeah, I, uh, I was young. I was in eighth grade when I read the book When Generations Collide. And it was it's a book by David Stillman and Lynn Lancaster. And I, th- I think it was just in my parents. It was in our house. And it was about that academic background of around generational theory about how these events and conditions during your formative years can impact the way you see the world. And I just thought that was really interesting. I grew up in a family that was somewhat politically inclined. And so there were a lot of conversations always happening in my house with my parents and my grandparents about the things that they saw when they were young and how it shaped them. And so I became really interested in it right when I was really exposed to the topic. And then a year later, 9-11 happened. Mm -hmm. And I just... It, you know, it's of, of course for everyone, it's, it's just one of those moments where you do sort of feel like life is never really the same uh, after something like that. And I was young. You know, I was 14 years old when that happened. And I just remember looking at me and my peers and feeling like this is the you know, this is one of those generational moments. Our kids will ask us, where were we? And it will help shape how we view the world. And so I, I just became, I, I sort of joke that I have one area of interest and I just stayed really true to that. And so I continued studying that throughout undergrad, but in undergrad, I focused more on baby boomers and longevity and um, and you know, what happens as we live longer. How What does that mean for the way we live our lives? And then my postgrad work, I looked more at social media and millennials and politics. And that was during the Obama-McCain campaign. And so that was, it you know, started a long time ago. And then I just, through some persistence, through a very you know, specific area of focus, uh, and then a lot of luck. I had great mentors. And, uh, you know, when I was young, I had a lot of people who were willing to take some chances on me. And I was able to just stay in my lane with this area of study. Yeah, I was just curious, Kim, since you went into something that was really unique, um, what, like, what was your degree in? Uh, I did journalism and sociology. And then the postgrad that I did, it was actually, it was just a program, not a master's program. It was just uh, like an extended area of research, a program through University of San Francisco, looking specifically at social media theory. So it was somewhat early on in the days of social media being used by everyone. And the Obama campaign was really the first that used it in politics and really met young people where they're at. And so it was a program to look at uh, how this new way of communicating was impacting young people and impacting politics. Wow. So you were really a trailblazer, even with what it was that you were studying. Was that difficult for you? Like, were people asking, you know, what are you studying? What are you focusing on? Was it hard for you to even explain to people or for, I mean, did you have any situations where people didn't even take you seriously just because purely because they didn't understand exactly what you were doing since it was so new? 
I still kind of get that. Like on airplanes, when people are like, what do you do? And I say, I study generations. They're like, that's not a thing. So I think I I still sometimes get that. But, you know, I I think sometimes it depends on how it's framed up. Definitely in 2008, 2009, when you say something like, I'm looking at the impact of social media on politics, everyone was interested in that. I mean, just watching... The Obama McCain uh, that that Obama campaign unfold it was so new and it was so exciting and I think a lot of people were really curious about how that was going to change politics in general and now we look at where we are today and it's totally different how social media has has transformed the political sphere so yeah I mean in, in some ways it was a little hard back then to explain to people what I did I think in some ways it's still difficult today to explain to people what I do so that has remained consistent throughout my career I find that there are two um, very different camps out there um, those who believe in generation divides that basically each generation has its own traits and quirks and personalities, you know, and if we're generalizing them, for example, millennials are are, are lazy or they like to work in, in, in groups or Gen X is, is um, a very independent generation. Um, and those who believe that we're really all the same, is anyone right? Is anyone wrong? Is it kind of a blend between the two? I mean, no, no one's really right or wrong in that. I think one thing that happened with this topic of generations is people got confused about what it was for, about what the topic of generations actually studies, because this isn't to be used to try to understand one individual, where sometimes people will email me and say, oh, my my son, who's a millennial, you know, does this, this and this, what do you think? And <laughs> I, I say, I, I have absolutely no idea. Uh, so, it isn't to understand an individual. That's what that's what a psychological study is for. Where a sociological study, which is where generational theory lands, it's to understand our culture. So we look at things like how have status symbols changed over time. Um, today, in many circles, a status symbol could be wearing a Soul Cycle tank top and having a co-op bag filled with organic food. Well, but that wasn't always a status symbol. Uh, In previous generations, it was a white picket fence or an Electrolux or something like that. And so I think it's important for people to really understand what are we trying to study and what are we trying to understand? We're trying to understand how the way we consume as a culture changes, uh, how wealth is displayed, how parenting trends evolve, how the structures of our family evolve over time, the way we vote as a culture over time. So, um, you know, for the people who say these generational lines, they don't exist, of course they do. Our culture is always evolving. And by looking at it through this topic, through this lens of generations, all we're really trying to do is understand change through a generational lens um, or really through a human lens, through through a human lens and understand change in generational time. So and, and the one other thing I'll say that's sort of funny is in other cultures, specifically Eastern cultures, this topic of generations has always been a part of the way that they've viewed 
life and the way that they have viewed history. Uh, in India, in China, there's this understanding that you're part of a collective generational story. You're part of that tapestry. Where America, we're such an individualistic culture where we were all told that the things that we experience, only we experience those things. And even if other people do somehow experience them, they don't experience them the way that we do as an individual. And so the the understanding that you actually are part of a cultural tapestry, you do have these shared experiences, I think is sometimes difficult for Americans to digest because of this individualistic society. The group that you you spoke to at Ensper last summer, I think really had some great takeaways from your keynote. And I know I did. That's obviously one of the reasons why we wanted to reach out to you. But since I've come away from that that speech, I find that a lot of the conversations are always about like, do you embrace what your generation is, you know, and what they've experienced and how they've kind of grown up? Or do you look at it with like, not disdain, but just like, that's not me. You know, I'm not like this. I'm not that kind of person. We really are all the same. We're just, and I always find that there are just, since last year, my eyes have kind of been open to that, that those two different perspectives. I understand the people who say I am nothing like what they write about my, you know, with my generation. And I especially understand that with millennials because the word just got dragged through the mud and it almost became a slur. Like if someone calls you a millennial, that's a really bad thing. And so I I get the conversation of people saying this is not real and people are all the same. Um, But again, that kind of goes back to if you're trying, if you're using this lens to try to understand an individual or you're using this lens to try to understand a culture, like the lazy thing or the work ethic thing that we hear with millennials, it's not a conversation about who's lazy and who works hard. It's a conversation about how has our relationship with work evolved over time? That's the better question. Yeah. And you spent time talking a lot about how how millennials tend to want to work more collaboratively um, Mm -hmm. with with one another. Where does that come from? It comes from a few places. One is the school system. It was during the formative years of millennials where the public school K through 12 environment moved from a traditional lecture style to sitting in groups of four. And so most millennials will remember that at least in K through five, at least, um, The desks were in groups of four, and it was because the reigning research at that time was saying if you put kids in this style of in the seating style, they would have better conflict resolution skills. They would be better collaborators, and in some ways that came true. And then, of course, the technologies that came out during the formative years of millennials, they were collaborative technologies. It was these two-way conversations. It was being able to crowdsource ideas and crowdsource reviews and collaborate on things in order to uh, in order to figure stuff out. And it's little things like when people post on Facebook, hey, I'm going to Montreal. Do people have some recommendations? That's that is collaborating. Mm. And so um, it's that mix of technology and then just the, the changes in the actual physicality of the K through 12 environment. Kim, in your, 
in your actual work and your studies, do you find yourself studying more of what happened in the past so that you could answer questions like the one that Steve just asked you? Or do you look more towards the future? Or do you find yourself saying more in the present? That's a good question. And I imagine it's probably a combination. Yeah. I just, I, I didn't know if, if in your particular methodology, if you stayed in one of those areas, one more than another. I think, you know, it, it is a mix of all, of all three of those, looking at the past, looking at the present, looking at the future, you know, and a lot of what I try to do is to look at some of the trends that we're seeing today, some of the trends that are being forecasted for tomorrow. And then I look at the past in order to have some context because what can happen is, um, you know, there are some things that are, that are life stage that are not necessarily generational, but you don't know that unless you have the context. So when we talk about teenagers today, sometimes in a, uh, you know, sometimes people will say, well, I did that kind of stuff when I was a teenager. And that's because there are some things that are sort that are, um, somewhat unique to that life stage. And so I think it's just important to have that context of what has happened in the past, what is happening in the present, what might happen in the future, what's the same, what are the consistencies, and what are the differences? And I think that's where you can glean real insight. I feel like brands um, spend a lot of time trying to identify opportunities and then um, be able to reach their their target audiences, but they they view things through um, generational stereotypes. Sometimes I feel like that can trip people up because content seems forced. Um, I think sometimes there's this uh, right FOMO. There's this fear of missing out. So any kind of trend that's going on, they try to you know kind of shoehorn their their message into whatever that trend is, and the message sometimes gets misconstrued. How do brands successfully move beyond? generational stereotypes in order to better connect with their audiences. I'm I'm laughing only because when I think about advertisements that I've seen where they have just it feels like there was a focus group of people being like what do millennials like and it was just <laughs> all things that were like so crazy and there was and I, I think it was a, a Microsoft commercial where it was like young people and they were in an office, but they were break dancing and someone was beatboxing. And, and I was like, who is this for? <laughs> <laughs> totally what happens every day. I'm like, yeah, I'm always break dancing and beatboxing in an office. This is so <laughs> amazing to me. Um, and then of course there was that Pepsi commercial with Kendall Jenner that just could not have been more tone deaf. And it was, I mean, it was, it was unbelievable to watch that. So, um, yeah, I think, I think one of the best brands to look at, actually, who has done just a great job of really capturing an audience in an authentic way and ca capturing a young audience without overgeneralizing and stereotyping is Wendy's. And I think a lot of that is just through their Twitter account where they have really empowered their social media managers to uh, to go for it and to stay true to this voice of Wendy, who's now kind of this snarky redhead. And, uh, you know, they just, they, they landed on basically a character that would speak to young people, you know, someone who was a little bit snarky, a little bit sarcastic, very quick, very witty. And they stayed true to that. It was authentic to the brand. And, 
um, you know, they allow their social media managers to respond in real time, which I think is an important aspect of effective marketing today. Uh, so I think I think some of it is just the advertising and marketing 101, which is who are you and how do you stay authentic to that? You know, without chasing every trend, especially if a specific trend is not particularly relevant for your brand. And then just being so careful with these overgeneralizations because the consumers today are so savvy. So when you put an advertisement or a piece of marketing out there that is very clearly targeted towards millennials based on every stereotype about millennials, they know. Like they know what's going on and, and it's uh, it ends up really missing the mark. So I think it's even more important today for brands to really figure out who they are and then communicate in the way that's most authentic to them. Your example with Wendy's is so interesting because I've, I've used Wendy's in um, presentations as examples of, of, of social voice and whatnot that I've done before. And um, one of the examples that I'll use is I'll throw Carter Wilkerson's um, face up on a screen and I'll say, does anyone know who Carter Wilkerson is? And like, nobody knows who Carter Wilkerson is. But then I'll say, okay, does anybody recognize this? And you put up his tweet where he's asking how many retweets do I need to get to get a free year's worth of nuggets? And everybody goes, oh yeah, I know that kid. That's the nugget guy. And it's <laughs> like, it doesn't matter, you know, cause everybody all of a sudden it's like, oh yeah, Wendy's is great. Like it's a special kind of brand that what you do, you know, and people have really hot takes on fast food and maybe Wendy's food in general. And yet I think the general perception of Wendy's is somewhat positive because of their social branding and because of how they connect with their fans. It almost doesn't matter if you like their food or not. That's not what they're known for today. Right. Yep. And they're that Twitter fight with IHOP slash IHOP. And I think that that will end up going down in marketing textbooks about brand voice, about humor in uh, in branding and uh, about responding in real time. I mean, it was just it was it was brilliant. Yeah. So you I like that you already touched on that all of us should be doing our jobs to find out specifically what our audience wants to hear. But knowing that, so you've got this background, you're an expert in this area, but like how can the, the commoner, the person who's not an expert in, in generations and following trends, creators like us, identify and keep up with these cultural trends? Do you have mm -hmm. any like tips for us that we can use? Yeah, I have, I have a few tips. I have a few uh, re recommended reading that could potentially be helpful. Oh, that'd be great. But I think that one of the best places to understand trends and how the world is changing is by thinking about what is most personal to people. And of course, there's a place to understanding robots and artificial intelligence and all of that. But one of the ways that I study trends is looking at things that change our day-to-day -day lives. I spend a lot of time on, uh, doing research on parenting trends and how the relationship between parents and children have evolved and why that is and, and what that means for what people value and how they spend their time. Um, looking at marriage trends, uh, how are how are families structured? What do, what do people look for in a spouse today? And again, what does that mean for what we value and, um, and how we live on a day-to-day -day basis? So I would say just for an average 
person. If you were going to spend 20 minutes a day thinking about thinking about the world and looking at trends, I would say parenting trends and and marriage trends are such a good place to start because it is so deeply personal. Um, the book All or Nothing Marriage by Eli Finkel is a really amazing book that gives this context through the generations about what marriage was for uh, in the past, what it is for today, and what it would be for in the future, uh, how people choose a spouse, and what people are really looking for. Uh, I think that's a really interesting book. Um, I think a lot of the writing of Adam Grant is also really interesting because he really focuses on how our relationship to work evolves. And again, work is one of those really personal things. People spend the majority of their lives, uh, of their working lives, obviously, in the workplace. And so he really looks at when we say things like people want more meaningful work, what does that even mean? And why? Why now do people want more meaningful work? Um, he looks at how our idea of a good leader, how that has changed over time and what that means. So Adam Grant, Eli Finkel, I think those are great academics to follow to understand some of those trends. And again, I... I think it is important to focus on the things that are deeply personal to people, which is their children, their spouse, their families, and their work. It sounds like I've heard you say this word a few times, but also just reading between the lines that like the word value, what what we are placing value on as humans is kind of like the baseline for all of this. Yeah, for, okay. for me. And you know, people study this in different ways. But uh, for me, that is a primary focus. So as we're learning our audience is better and we're doing, um, you know, we should all be doing research basically on, on our audiences and, and who they consist, you know, what, who they basically consist of. Um, are there strategies or ideas when you're looking to connect on that personal level, um, on maybe more of a niche space that our creative friends who listen to this podcast can be looking at? For creative people under, uh, looking at research in order to better, better understand our communities and the people who you're trying to really create for, I think it's important, especially because these there's a lot of anecdotal stories out there specifically on this topic of generations. And so something that can happen is you, you think about your own life or you think about your kids or you think about your friends and then you don't even, you know, pe people don't even mean to do this, but then they draw these broad conclusions based on their own stories or the kind of this focus group of one mentality. And I, I do find oftentimes that creative people who are so story driven, they sometimes fall into this trap of this focus group of one of really holding on to one story and gleaning sometimes too much insight from that one story. And that's one of the reasons why I think this research is really important so that, um, again, we can understand the, you can understand the story of your community, not just one individual person. You can step outside of your own lens to try to view the world through the eyes of of a different lens through different people. And, um, and then of course the research is so important right now because our country is more diverse. Our country is more 
there's more income inequality. And those things also impact this data. And so it's really important to make sure that, that we're looking at scientific research that you know, these focus groups and interviews and surveys, the ones we're looking at should be exact replications of the American cult of the American population, so that we're actually getting an accurate snapshot of of our country and of our communities. Is there anything that you do informally to do these kind of studies? Like I'm thinking about the fact that like if I go out to eat, I'm the person who's not focusing on the person I'm with. I'm like listening to the conversation next to me. I'm constantly asking strangers questions because all of this stuff is really interesting to me. Do you do stuff like that as well? Oh my gosh, Michelle, we should work <laughs> together because that's I'm like an infamous eavesdropper. Yes. Uh, I'll be at dinner with my husband and I'm like, oh my gosh, did you hear what that person said four tables down? And he's like, exactly. A microphone on them? What's going on? So I, uh, yes, that's, that's the thing about this this research and this job is when you're just trying to have a better understanding of the world around you, you're always listening. And that's the key to any good researcher. That's a key to a lot of the most creative people I've ever met is they're amazing listeners. And some of these trends that we're seeing, they're unfolding in front of our very eyes constantly, but you, but you have to, your eyes have to be open. You know, you have to be, you know, looking around. So in answer to your question, I, I, do that all the time. And and another informal place where I gather information is in presentations. Uh, you know, one of the best ways to gauge how real a trend is is when you bring it to a stage and you can feel from the audience right away what what feels very real to them. What is what is visceral? And so that's another place where I'm I'm constantly looking at the audience to really see where do they get emotional? Where do they laugh? Where do they point to one another and, uh, you know, call each other out? Looking for all of those moments to better understand what from the research feels the most real to people. Oh, that's so powerful. So we should be looking for opportunities to do this as much as we can. Yeah, I would say eavesdrop and ask strangers inappropriate questions and uh, and ignore the people you're at dinner with. I think all of those are extremely, <laughs> extremely important, important takeaways. I find that so interesting, though, because and, and maybe this has always been like this and we're just we're, we're putting a word to it now and we'll just call it influencers or influencer marketing. But, you know, we live in a in a trust deficit now that it, it almost seems like since our trust is so low, we rely more and more on the opinions of others to help make decisions, right? So we, you know, we, we, we trust recommendations on restaurants. We trust recommendations on, you know, what movies to go see. Mm-hmm. Um, why is it, does it seem like it, it's so much more um, important now than it was 10, 15, 20 years ago. And maybe it isn't. It's just like what we were saying. Now there's a word attached to it. But why does it seem like it's so much more important today, the role of influencers on our society? You hit it on the head when you talk about this trust deficit is that as a population, people are more skeptical of institutions, of politicians, you know, all of these things. And so we are leaning more on each other to try to to try to make decisions. Uh, and the reason that I think that this whole influencer industry blew up is because it taps into something 
that already exists within all of us, which is wanting to build connections with with a person, um, wanting to have trust in them, wanting to be inspired by them. And that's exactly what, what influencers were able to do. And, you know, putting con and the influencers today, you know, that, that even that whole influencer industry is changing all the time where now I think we're really looking at this rise of micro influencers, these people where they don't have thousands or millions of followers, you know, they have some followers, but the followers that they have, they are very influential over. Um, and so I think that we're going to continue seeing this trend of these more micro influencers and having those, you know, the reason that they're able to influence is because of this authenticity, because of these social stories that they're able to tell. And that, and so when you ask the question, why has this become really prominent in our culture? I think one reason is the trust deficit and two is it's tapping into something that is human anyways. We've always trusted people more than we've trusted institutions, but we didn't have a choice before. You know, we, when these platforms didn't exist, we just had to put our faith in institutions because we didn't have access to all of these individuals where now we have access to individuals. And so that's where we're putting our trust. Stephen, when, when we just talked on the phone before, the other piece about, um, about influencers that we were talking about was, and it doesn't really have to do with trust, but it, it has to do with speed. And the example that I gave you earlier was with travel is just that an individual can be so much more agile than an institution. And so the example I gave you is, you know, if, if Marriott is building a new hotel in some interesting location, it means that it's not a new, it's not a new location and it's not uncharted territory and it's perhaps not super interesting. But if you follow you know, some of these travel bloggers, some of these influencers in that travel space, they can go to these areas of the world that people have not seen and they can open your eyes to that. And we think about just the, you know, the late great Anthony Bourdain and how he completely changed what we think travel is. Um, and it wasn't about hotel chains. It was about hole in the wall, hole in the wall restaurants and places that, um, you know, most Americans definitely would never know anything about. And so I think that's also one of the reasons that we see this big influencer industry is that individuals can be better explorers than a large corporation. And a lot of times that's what we're looking for. When we're looking for the latest restaurant, the newest location, the coolest brand, we, we're influenced by these explorers, these early adopters, and they have the ability to do that much more than a corporation ever could. I have experienced that firsthand because of those trailblazers and, and people who are going out there. Like my husband and I travel quite a lot and the places I have loved the most over the last two years have not been in big cities, but have been in the small cities outside of, of the mm -hmm. big places that everyone knows about. And it has been amazing to see how I, I have, haven't done this outside of the country, but at least within our country to see how those the impact that those influencers are making, because it's not just, OK, I'm going to show up to this place because I saw someone Instagram about it and it looked cool, but then I'm going there and taking Instagrams and we're we're driving people to to new areas and we're also making those places 
look more beautiful, which like as a designer makes me really happy because people, these venues um, and businesses know that people are going to come there and, and document it. So like everyone is like forced to up their, their visual game. So yeah, yeah that just makes oh, me I, really I, happy. I, no, I totally, uh, I totally agree. And I think the the term making something Instagrammable. Yeah, I say like, that all the time. <laughs> yeah, and and for some reason, I think a lot of people get annoyed by that. And I'm like, why why shouldn't places be built more beautifully? Like, why why not? Why why would we complain about that? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I I think it's uh, I think it's a great thing. And then you know, Michelle, even just just personally, I I did find um, just about a month ago, my husband and I went away for the first time since we had our baby. So we went away, just the two of us. Mm-hmm. And we went to this, um, this really cool camping site in Big Sur, California, that I found through a travel blogger on Instagram. And it was amazing. I'm sure it was super Instagrammable. It was extremely <laughs> Instagrammable. <laughs> the one other thing that I just had in my notes, you know, as artificial intelligence becomes a bigger part of our day-to-day lives, the importance of human creativity is going to grow. And so I've listened to a few episodes of your podcast, and I think they're great. And I think when we look at writers and linguists and artists and designers, um, I, I think that their influence in our world will grow. I think the value that we put on them will continue to grow as as artificial intelligence can, you know, will be able to do a lot of different things. I think just that very um, uniquely human style of doing anything uh, will just be more valuable. So it, I think it's a it's an amazing time to be a creative person in a creative industry. That's really interesting that you said that because I think a lot of people are very threatened by AI and. Uh, It's cool that you said at least the creative people are going to be the ones who come out on top as a result of this. Like, yes, maybe the people who are doing the jobs that anyone can do may lose their jobs and need to, you know, learn a new skill or or decide to do something different. But maybe that will also encourage more people to tap into their creativity because there will be more of a need for that. Mm -hmm. I think so. I I, I think that... There will be, and we are, I mean, just again, like we were talking about how some of these trends are unfolding all around us all the time. Um, but the, I know a handful of writers and they do a, a lot of editing. They do some corporate writing and they are in such high demand, you know, people really looking at even their internal corporate material and wanting it to be more lyrical, wanting it to be more articulate, wanting to think more about diction and, and all of those things. I think there's just... Um, I think people are putting a bigger emphasis on the words that are written, the words that are spoken. Uh, just like you said, you know, the design that 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 people are surrounded by, the design of our workplaces, the design of our uh, hotels, all of that. So I just think um, I just even see it in our day to day life of how how valuable that that type of creativity has become. So put your predictor hat on if you had to think about where we're going as uh, as a creative industry um 
are we doubling down on things that we are currently doing with more storytelling and more awareness of some of these trends or are we potentially headed for, you know, another type of seed change in the next five to 10 years? I think the creative industries in general have typically done a good job of incorporating new technology into the industry in order to make it stronger. And I, I think we're, we're going to see that there will be visionary creatives who figure out how to leverage artificial intelligence, leverage some of these algorithms to make things more beautiful, to make things more seamless, to make things more interesting. Uh, and so in that regard, I think there will be an, some of a sea change, but some of the core of the creative industry, just like you said, you know, things around storytelling, I think, I think that will just, you know, I, I would say double down on that. It is, it's in our DNA to respond to stories, to understand the world around us through the art of storytelling. And I do not think that that will change mostly because it can't we're we're not uh, evolved enough to understand things in a different way we want to thank kim for hanging out with us on the podcast such an awesome episode to record if you want to learn more about kim and her company visit her website inlayinsights.com or follow her on twitter at kim underscore lear underscore if you've enjoyed this episode help us spread the word on social media Tag us at pod for creatives on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook, and let us know what stood out to you the most. Looking forward to hearing from you.